Hi everyone, this is Christopher Brick, and I'm delighted to welcome you back once more to Intervals, a public humanities podcasting initiative of the Organization of American Historians. For this episode, we're also welcoming our fourth featured lecturer of season two, Dr. Susan Daly Swearingen, who's here to help us peel back yet one more layer of the long, complex, and difficult history associated with American culture's most recognizable hate symbol, the Confederate flag. Styled originally as a battlefield emblem for Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia, the Confederate flag's long afterlife in postbellum politics and culture owes much to the attractive symbolism it gave various white power movements in the 20th and 21st century U.S. who recruited it into their campaigns against things like school desegregation, integration of the armed forces, equal access to voting rights, or, as recently as 2021, certification of the results of the 2020 presidential election. Less familiar to most listeners, though, will be the flag's lengthy foothold in the political culture of places like Brazil, Northern Ireland, Italy, or the United Emirates, the flag's global reach, in other words. Dr. Daly Swearingen's here to help us all encounter some of that history, and as always, we hope to learn a bit more about our own. Here she is. Inspired by the many conflicts over the Confederate battle flag, both in the United States and emerging in other nations, this lecture will explore the flag's unstable meaning and contested history in the United States and abroad. Specifically, I am interested in investigating the two experiences to understand the extent to which American interpretations and culture accompanied the flag on its international sojourn. The global historical knowledge of the Southern Cross or the Stars and Bars can be gauged by the degree to which other countries are willing to impose their own restrictions on its use, citing the numerous white supremacist protests in the states, including the events in Washington, D.C. on January 6, 2020, and the intimidation or murder of people of African descent, especially in the U.S., lawmakers and ordinary citizens in Europe North America and South America, for example, are considering increasing restrictions on the use of the Confederate symbol. This lecture represents a snapshot of a much larger ongoing research project and relies thus far on a range of sources from the popular press and international news outlets, secondary scholarship and analysis, primary source documents, including letters and periodicals from the Civil War era, internet resources, including heritage group member forums, and the products of popular culture surrounding the flag produced both in America and abroad. For many Southern whites, the banners and flags of the Confederacy were, and have been since the beginning of the Civil War era, intrinsically linked to a shared set of values and a shared worldview that would become, in the post-war years, the foundation of Southern heritage and pride. This system, codified in the myth of the lost cause, was a work of fiction championed by Civil War heritage groups like the United Daughters of the Confederacy and the Sons of Confederate Veterans. Both groups were organized in the 1890s, partly from a desire to honor veterans and preserve a Southern culture rent by the war and Reconstruction. 
spreading the Lost Cause version of the past through textbooks, reunions, pageantry, novels, symbols, and scholarship, was an attempt to see and make see the antebellum past, not for its depravity, shame, and, quote, sin, but for a beautiful culture of gentility, for the romantic characters reminiscent of Camelot, painted in people's memory with the vivid technicolor of David O. Selznick's Gone with the Wind. Essential to this vision was the unspoken requirement that it be a patriarchal symbol of white, Anglo-Saxon Protestant men attended by doting women, subservient children, and dehumanized enslaved people. Few people critique the absurdity of this idea as artfully as Southern writer and Mississippi native Eudora Welty. In 1960, Welty spoke at Wesleyan's Dorothy Lamar Blunt lecture series in Macon, Georgia. Her topic was the metaphor, the use of metaphor, and the grotesque tropes of the Southern Gothic genre used in her works of fiction to discuss the past while also critiquing her present. Born in 1909, Welty died in 2001, meaning her life spanned the almost entire 20th century. During this time, the wide-eyed and observant writer had the opportunity to watch the South evolve and adjust in response to the shifting realities of the American experience. As she spoke in 1960, the struggle for racial equality continued to be opposed by agents of institutionally sanctioned violence and terror. The Confederate flag was used as a weapon of fear, white pride, and a system in which there were people who mattered, the white upper and middle classes, and those who did not, the poor and non-white Anglo-Saxon Protestants or WASPs. It was a talisman for many WASPy Southerners, its mythic connections to the past were summoned in aid of influencing the present and healing what Welty called the ravages of our time. The problem, then as now, was that Americans disagree on what those ravages are. On one side, broadly speaking, were white supremacists who feared the progress of racial equality and the loss of their imagined past and authority. On the other, people frightened and offended by a symbol that is a ubiquitous tool of racially-based intimidation and violence. If the international community is taking its cues about the meaning or acceptability of the Confederate flag from Americans, it is no wonder why many remain as divided as people in this nation are. In words staggeringly applicable to our contemporary reality, Welty critiqued her time, saying, we live now in an age which doubts both fact and value, which is swept this way and that by momentary convictions. This statement, at least partly, is a response to the use of Confederate memory to justify neo-Confederate ambitions on display during the civil rights era and now, ambitions powerfully associated with the Confederate battle flag. After the Civil War, relics from the conflict became exalted objects, symbols of a secular religion that emphasized nostalgia and the glories of the past. My use of this sacral vocabulary is not intended as hyperbole. To this day, the UDC and the SCV continue to describe essential symbols of the Confederacy as, quote, sacred, consistent with the war-era emphasis on Christianity, God, and the righteousness of their cause. 
Both Lee and the battle flag underwent a type of civic beatification, resulting in a consecrated flag that some are still dedicated to defending, with violence if necessary. While it was never the Confederate flag, the official symbol of the Confederate Union as a whole, its expanded embrace by soldiers and civilians not directly associated with Lee's regiments transformed its significance beyond the regimental origins into a symbol of the entire Confederate experience. Flag historian John Kosky suggests that this transition occurred during the war as confidence in Jefferson Davis and the Confederate government waned and reverence for Lee and his flag surged. In the memory industry spawned after the Civil War, the Southern Cross has become, perhaps, the most recognized and controversial symbol of the entire conflict. Champions of the Lost Cause interpretation were, and in some sense continue to be, so successful that their promotion of the Lost Cause myth and its historic sentimentality has, in many places, supplanted historical fact and become the accepted history of the Confederate South. The flag is the most significant symbol of this myth-making, and has been since its beginning. This version of Southern history was initially a regional phenomenon contained within the former Confederate states. With time, the story, which de-emphasizes the treasonous connotations of the flag, was absorbed into the broader American and global communities. In America, this was facilitated in part by strong Southern support for the Spanish-American War, the images of Southern soldiers fighting for the United States rather than against it allowed a sort of reconciliation and appreciation of Southern people that, in turn, suppressed the insurrectionist patina of the sodars and bars and allowed the symbol to be displayed by more Americans across the country as a celebration of Southern pride, not Southern rebellion. This process accelerated during the First and Second World Wars. White soldiers from the American South brought the flag along on their deployments across Europe and the South Pacific. According to the Baltimore Evening Sun, it became, quote, a recurring phenomenon which has been observed in areas as widely separated as the Southwest Pacific, Italy, and France. One Marine raised the stars and bars over a base in the Solomon Island and was celebrated by the Charlotte Observer for honoring, quote, descendants of men who wore the gray and have not forgotten in the turmoil of their battle their reverence for those heroes of the 1860s. In 1948, President Truman issued Executive Order 9981, officially desegregating the U.S. military. In response, South Carolina Senator Strom Thurmond and like-minded Southern politicians formed the Dixiecrats to combat what they believed was an erosion of Southern culture and values another way of saying white supremacy. According to the NAACP, the sale of the Confederate flag in the U.S. soared from 40,000 to 1,600,000 between 1949 and 1950. For some non-Americans, however, due to its presence overseas, the flag signified the U.S. in general and its military prowess, especially from the late 1940s forward when the mass marketing of American kitsch and memorabilia came of age, the flag was imported by other countries as a piece of general Americana 
associated with popular culture, like country music or the Dukes of Hazard television show. This phenomenon helps highlight one of the contemporary controversies about the flag, namely, whether or not the flag could ever be a benign symbol of American regional or national culture. For many, the answer was, and continues to be, no. After World War II, when the flag flew again in the Korean and Vietnam conflicts, it had an additional and regressive layer of meaning. In echoes of the Civil War, it became a symbol of resistance to federal policy and the equality of African Americans. When black troops complained about its presence at military installations abroad, they were punished, often being forced to undertake menial and demeaning tasks. The current American confusion at seeing the Confederate flown by non-Americans in the international context is the product of a false assumption. Perhaps it is a result of the subconscious influence of American exceptionalism, a belief that America is so unique in the history of the world that other countries use it to measure their own success or failure. This point of view can be extrapolated to a belief that the rest of the world, therefore, follows every action of the U.S. and every aspect of its history. This is, of course, an illogical assumption. One example of its illogic comes from the English town of Cheltenham in Gloucestershire. In 2018, a 71-year-old man was forced to bring down a Confederate flag flying over his house. The man, John Bryant, told the Independent newspaper, To be honest, I didn't realize it was racist or anything like that. He said he got it from a country and western music club he belonged to, and his love of the music is why he flew it. Founding father and American president John Adams observed that, quote, facts are stubborn things, and whatever may be our wishes or inclinations or the dictates of our passion, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. The fact remains that the flag began as a symbol of an army fighting to perpetuate slavery, and that context can never be wholly erased. The system of enslavement was an international crime involving a collusion by multiple empires to create a system of profit based on the labor of the enslaved and involving their torture, rape, and murder. Therefore, many nations are already linked to this symbol as fellow actors involved in the origins of American slavery. With the rising number of international and transnational groups using the Confederate flag as a dog whistle for their agendas of hate and terror, it is becoming increasingly impossible to remain neutral in the debate over its display, whether you are an American or not. In addition to the literal connections between the old world and the new through their shared history with slavery, the cultural ties between the two are influenced by a system of transcultural memory, which arose as a field of study in the first decade of the 21st century. Memory scholar Astrid Earle writes, memory is fundamentally transcultural. No version of the past will ever belong to just one community or place, but usually has its own history of travel and translation. Charting the evolution of these transcultural influences, including the widespread use of the Confederate battle flag, is made much easier in the age of digital communication and global interconnectedness. Therefore, the idea that people outside the U.S. are completely unaware of the many contexts of the flag 
is harder to sustain. It is nevertheless helpful to acknowledge that the level at which those outside the U.S. understand its history and meaning is still variable. To better explain this variation, I have identified four categories of the flag's use internationally. The first category includes individuals, nations, and national regions who have a direct connection to the U.S., slavery, and the Civil War through their ancestral connections to combatants, the direct actions of their nation's citizens, or patterns of immigration that brought substantial numbers of immigrants to the U.S. and into the conflict. Today, the U.S. Southeast is still a region populated by people fiercely proud of their connections to both Ireland and the British Isle. The effect of British immigrants and their colonial settlement patterns on American culture has been explored by numerous scholars. Perhaps most notable has been David Hackett Fisher in his 1989 book, Albion Seed. His folkways theory essentially argued for an American culture with four distinct regions created by groups of immigrants from different regions of Great Britain. While aspects of this thesis have been challenged in the years since the publication of his book, other aspects are still compellingly observable. As only a single example, consider that the U.S. South is still littered with towns called Richmond, Ivanhoe, Glasgow, Charlotte, Durham, etc., the Ulster region of Ireland, an area that remains part of Great Britain, is home to the Ulster Scots, or Scots-Irish as they are called in the U.S. These people are descendants of those who were forced out of the lowlands in Scotland and sent to reassert Protestant English authority in predominantly Catholic Northern Ireland in the first part of the 17th century. In the 18th century, more than 200,000 Scots-Irish left Ulster and resettled in America. They arrived primarily in the mid-Atlantic states, and from there spread to communities both north and south of what would become the Mason-Dixon Line. In the early 2000s, a mural appeared in Belfast. The background, painted on a long stretch of brick wall, was a dynamic rendering of the Confederate flag. In front of that were portraits of Civil War generals, including Lee and Jackson, and in the immediate foreground, a banner that read, the sons of Ulster, who led the Confederate Army during the War of Northern Aggression. Brazil, likewise, has a historically direct connection to the Confederacy through a group of Confederates who immigrated to the country after the war and tried to perpetuate the system of slavery in Brazil, where it remained legal. Cultural geographer Jordan Brasher has made a careful study of the Confederate culture of these confederados, including their annual celebration Festa Confederadas, and the Brazilian Confederate Heritage Organization, whose flag-waving members are coming under increasing pressure to limit their use of the flag. Significantly, according to Brasher's research, even some of those who participate in the annual celebration are feeling uneasy with the flag, especially as it continues to be attacked as a symbol of hate in the U.S., the second category of the Confederate flag's international usage includes individuals, nations, and international regions that foster a metaphorical connection between their interpretation of the cause and contemporary issues in their own country. Professor Ryan K. McNutt ties the Confederate flag to those who use it as a shorthand for, quote, small government, 
anti-tax, anti-intervention, and socially conservative viewpoints on gender, sexuality, feminism, and race. That list covers a myriad of globally contested issues tied into one symbol. More generally, the flag is also used as an emblem for those who see themselves as rebels, broadly defined. Journalist Liam Kennedy with the Clinton Institute for American Studies in Dublin evokes the mutual affinity that exists between Ireland and the Confederacy. He writes that, quote, the regional myths of the American South and West are symbolically mapped onto Irish culture, more often than not onto rural Irish culture. They are perceived as predominantly non-urban, pre- or anti-modern frontier spaces of America's marginalized white people. In other words, they summon images of rebels, rebels to authority, on the outside of society who define their own rules and prize their independence. Of these type of people, Kennedy writes that Ireland, quote, has more than its fair share. While only 20,000 ethnically Irish soldiers fought for the Confederacy, and another 160,000 fought for the Union, historian David T. Gleason asserts that it was the rhetoric and images comparing the South's struggle with the North to that of Ireland with Great Britain that played such an important role in convincing those 20,000 troops to join the Confederates. The persistence of these images, in part, has helped sustain a continuing Irish fascination with Southern culture that novelist Patrick McCabe called a redneck symphonia and a white trash oratorical. However, Irish reverence for the symbols of the U.S. Confederacy is not a universally Irish quality. Inspired in part by NASCAR's ban on the flag, international sports associations appear to be reconsidering their tolerance of the symbol at their events. In Cork, where the flag has now been banned from football matches, fans of the local team called the Rebels also claim that the flag symbolizes their heritage. In that case, however, they likely mean their reputation as a rebel county in various conflicts dating back to the War of the Roses. So, some have claimed that they have adopted the Confederate symbol as a symbol of rebellion in general, believing that they could fly it without invoking its original purpose. Reaction to the flag indicates that is not the case. The Irish Sports Association issued the following declaration. Any conduct by deed, word, or gesture of sectarian or racist nature, or which is contrary to the principles of inclusion and diversity against a player, official, spectator, or anyone else, in the course of activities organized by the association, shall be deemed to have discredited the association. For many Irish players of African descent, who still complain of racist and unfair treatment by whites, the display of the Confederate flag violates these terms of the association's decree. In his book, Nations Divided, historian Don Harrison Doyle recalls the words of an Italian colleague who imbued the symbols of the Confederate lost cause with connections to Southern Italian resistance to Northern power. In aligning the two, he said, we too are a defeated people. Once we were a rich and independent country, and then they came from the north and conquered us and took our wealth and power away to Rome. The third category of Confederate flag usage abroad describes people who can be found in every country where the Confederate flag is used, including the United States. 
These are people and groups who use the symbol without basic understanding of its historic or contemporary meanings, as well as those who decide to ignore these aspects altogether. American photographer Jay Sewell spent three months photographing and interviewing English reenactors. He reported that reenacting of multiple wars was popular in England. In explaining the popularity of the U.S. Civil War, he explained that they grew up watching American westerns and TV shows. One reenactor reported, I've always been mad on it since I was about six years of age. This passion for the war was even shared by Winston Churchill, who included a detailed history of the conflict in his multi-volume history of the English-speaking people. And why not? According to turn-of-the-20th-century Alabama historian A.B. Moore, Civil War Confederates fantasized that they were gallant knights, after all. He wrote, It is a matter of common knowledge now that the planters regard the war as their war, and they took up arms with the zeal of the knights of old, of whom they were conscious imitators. English interest in the American war has not led to greater sensitivity around contentious symbols like the flag. As a national public radio report put it, you'll see Confederate flags flown around with nonchalance. Complex connotation and entrenched sensitivity are somewhat lost overseas. Members of the U.S. terrorist group, the Ku Klux Klan, have stated from the time of Nathan Bedford Forrest that the group has its roots in the culture of Great Britain, especially the Scottish tradition of cross-burning. While the organization is not as prevalent or powerful as it was in the previous centuries, it likely served as the template for contemporary nationalist and terrorist organizations like the Boogaloo Boys, the Proud Boys, and the Oath Keepers, to name only a few. These groups remain very visible and very threatening to a variety of people in modern society. This brings us to the fourth category of international usage, which includes individuals, nations, and national regions who appropriate the flag for nationalistic and anti-immigrant or white supremacist causes precisely because it can be interpreted as a general symbol of hate. For example, in Northern Ireland, it has been adopted by a paramilitary organization calling themselves the Red Hand Defenders. The group of militant Ulster Unionists used the flag to equate their opposition to home rule to the Confederate attempt at secession. For them, this connection is apt because they see the people of both causes as victims of a larger organization with greater resources who trample on the rights of their minority, another essential component of the lost cause myth. However, the racial use of the flag by the defenders is hard to deny. In conjunction with some of the Red Hand Defenders' protests, the flag was hung on a Belfast lamppost in front of the home of a black family. The coach of the local football team, for whom one of the residents of the home played, defended the player by removing the flag himself. Additionally, he committed the club as a unit to combat such expressions of hate. Importantly, none of the nations I have listed here can be confined to a singular category of usage. Elements of all can be found in the places where the flag still flies. However, the effect of the flag as an international symbol of white supremacy increasingly negates or complicates any other explanation for flying the flag and confounds appropriation of the symbol for purposes other than hate. 
The U.S.-based Anti-Defamation League includes the Confederate battle flag on their list of hate and white supremacist-centered symbols, alongside emblems of neo-Nazis and the KKK. Despite this American designation, evidence of the flag is found in Germany, where some speculate that it serves as a substitute for Nazi symbols outlawed by the German government. However, it should also be noticed that Germans have as equal a claim to direct Civil War heritage as Ulster, Ireland, or Brazil. 526,000 native-born and American-born Germans fought for the Union in the Civil War. According to the National Park Service, this represented one quarter of the U.S. force. Germany is also the country that hosts Europe's largest annual Civil War reenactment called Rebel Yell, which attracts participants from nations all across Europe. As in England, reenactors give their reasons for participating as fun and a chance to publicly engage in mock battles that took place far away in time and location. Thus, they can engage in reenactments without being criticized for celebrating German nationalism or their most, more recent history in World War I and World War II. The numbers of Germans in the Confederate forces is vanishingly small compared to the number serving in the Union, a mere two or 3,000. Yet organizers at the Rebel Yell reenactment say the majority of participants want to be Confederates, so much so that organizers sometimes have to reach out to the community to find enough men willing to represent the Union. It cannot be ignored that the presence of the Confederate symbol has expanded far beyond its original, regional, and national boundaries. In 2015, the BBC published a story in which citizens of different countries wrote in to report the use of flag in their country. The news outlet received, amongst others, reports from Cyprus, Croatia, the UK, the UAE, Canada, and Spain. I began this studies in the days after the January 6, 2020 insurrection in Washington, D.C. I, like many people who watched the riot unfold, witnessed far too many horrific images to ever forget. Police being insulted with the national flag, or a group of predominantly white rioters pursuing a lone African-American guard with the kind of malice that evokes earlier errors when white mobs chased black men, women, and children to torture and murder them. Another image so impactful, seeing it made me temporarily forget to breathe, was the now iconic photograph of a man who breached the Capitol and strolled almost casually through its halls flying the Confederate flag. I'm not alone in signaling this image out for attention. In op-eds and news stories across the country, a sample of the larger American populace described being nauseated, terrified, and profoundly sad. I knew that the Confederate flag had international uses after reading Tony Horowitz's brilliant book, Confederates in the Attic. I wondered if the international community would change or limit the use of the flag as a result of the events at the Capitol. Thus far, my research indicates that was not the primary impetus for new bans and prohibitions against the flag. To live in America is to live with the Civil War its aftermath, its symbols, its hold on the present, and its frequent dominance of the American past. That is not an experience replicated by many places outside the U.S. Therefore, it is unreasonable to expect that the image of the flag in the Capitol, in particular, 
would have the power abroad that it had for so many at home. But the tragedy of racially motivated violence is something that is more universally felt. And the frequent murders of African-Americans and their supporters, including George Floyd, Heather Heyer, and the attendees of a Bible study in South Carolina, have had a profound impact internationally. Among other things, these tragedies have inspired people across the globe to investigate the manipulation of Confederate heritage by historic and contemporary lost cause mythmakers. As a result, the debate around the actual legacy and meaning of the flag has grown. Memory believes before knowing remembers, wrote William Faulkner in his 1932 novel, A Light in August. The importance of this assertion is found in its sequence. First comes memory, then comes knowledge. Cultural influences and collective memories influence a person's interpretation of symbols, for example, before a person acquires knowledge of its use in history. That assertion is constant across all people, regardless of their country of region or national origin. Such thinking may be partly responsible for confusing statements like the following from the United Daughters of the Confederacy. It was published on the organization's homepage in response to the use of the flag by contemporary hate groups and criminals. Be it known that the United Daughters of the Confederacy does not associate with or include in its official UDC functions and events any individual, group, or organization known as unpatriotic, militant, racist, or subversive to the United States of America and its flag. The unspoken irony of this lies in the uncontested fact that the flag was a literal part of the militant action against the United States government. Despite this, the organization has hidden Confederate emblems and narratives behind the shield of the benign and universal act of remembering ancestors. They do this irrespective of evolving knowledge about the war and its lingering effects on contemporary society. This type of historical stubbornness was mocked by the character of Stephen Colbert, portrayed by Stephen Colbert on The Colbert Report, who maintained, I'm not a fan of the facts. Facts change. My opinion never does. A pernicious feature of the debate over Civil War memory is the extent to which arguments about the past are inherently personal. As David Blight argued in a 2021 online lecture called how the aftermath of the Civil War helps us to understand Trumpism. Memory is personal. It is precious. It is one of the structures through which individuals form an identity. Therefore, to challenge an individual's memory is to challenge an aspect of their self. By this point in global history, large numbers of people in the U.S. and around the world have connected their own memories and beliefs to the Confederate flag. In the current fight over its display, it is crucial that all parties recognize that any attempt to limit its use will involve more than a redefinition or re-education of historical truth. It will require re-evaluation at the personal level of the willingness by individuals to separate their personal truths from a symbol that, regardless of the efforts of Civil War mythmakers, will never signify the same meaning to all people. And that's a wrap for this week. Next week, Dr. Susan Daly Swearingen's here in the virtual studio with Carrie Ann and I for some lively history Q&A. 
about her work on the history of the Confederate flag in diaspora, please do join us as well. We'll catch you then.